0: This is the Cater Daily Podcast for Friday, December 1st, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. What is wrong with our civil justice system? What does the lawyer monopoly on providing most legal services do for justice? What reforms would make civil justice more rational? And what might be the future role of AI in providing people with more vigorous representation? Bridget Mary McCormack is a former chief justice of the Michigan Supreme Court. She currently heads the American Arbitration Association. We spoke about civil justice earlier this year. You delivered the annual B. Kenneth Simon lecture at Cato's Constitution Day, and you laid out something of a parade of horrors uh, with respect to our current legal system. To our listeners, I want to refer you to that chilling speech Uh, especially if you suspect that you're reasonably satisfied with the judicial branch of government. So um, part of the challenges you lay out, uh, I think they all sort of fall or some of them fall within uh, one category, which is just people not being able to navigate the system without highly qualified uh, assistance. And what, hasn't that always been the case? I mean, as long as I've been aware of there being a legal system, it seems to me that it's been, it's very complicated. Lots of terms of art are thrown around. Why is that such a notable thing right now?
1: Well, it is true that the legal system has always been complicated. And I think that's a a feature, not a bug. But the problem we face right now is the sheer number of people who have to navigate their civil justice problems without the help of lawyers. When the legal system was built, as complicated as it was, it was built by lawyers for lawyers and everybody who encountered it had a lawyer. And now most people do not. And that means that they are left trying to uh, navigate it on their own or they, uh, in many cases, just give up
0: and you you laid out some details uh at Constitution Day about the degree to which the potential cost of not having representation in civil court not criminal court uh how high that could be
1: yeah so i and i one thing i said during my speech and i want to make clear now is i focused on the civil justice system um because i think uh, there is such a massive market failure happening um, across our civil justice dockets that it's, it, it, it strikes me that it should arrest everybody. It should really grab our attention, but I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to say that the criminal justice system or the family justice system are all going well, uh, the, but, but the civil justice system in particular was my focus because of um the, the the significant change we've seen since about the last quarter of the last century, the number of people now navigating civil dockets without lawyers um, is so staggering that I you know wish I could have every brand new law student uh, stop in at an eviction docket and a debt collection docket and a family law docket before they started law school. Um, because the vision of our justice system that we teach in law schools and see in the movies where each side is represented by a lawyer and they make the best arguments and the best argument wins is is a is a fiction in most of our um civil justice dockets right now. And there are there we don't have great data, but we have um uh some data that sheds light on that that should, I think, uh arrest all of us who care about the public's confidence in the rule of law.
0: You suggest some big changes uh, that might repair or you know, make more rational uh, the civil justice system. Is there uh, are there one or two or three reforms that you think would deliver a disproportionate punch?
1: So I mentioned in the talk some that are uh, on the horizon, or some, some that have made some, some that have made some progress. I personally think uh, we need all of the above, so I'll mention a few of them. Um, In a few states, we've seen regulatory reform where the state Supreme Courts have um, set up systems where people other than lawyers can provide legal help to uh, people who cannot afford lawyers. So Arizona and Utah were the first movers in that space, but recently Alaska and Oregon have done similar things, and there are a number of other states thinking about that. Arizona also changed the rule that prohibits ownership of legal practices uh, by non-lawyers to uh, open up innovation and hopefully push the market to come up with new solutions for the civil justice crisis. There has also been some important litigation in a couple of states that has potentially opened up a new avenue for people other than lawyers to help people with civil justice problems. The Upsolve litigation in New York State, which I know Cato has been active in, has uh, so far been successful in litigating uh, the problem of people who are not lawyers being able to help people with civil justice problems under the First Amendment's protections. Um, And that so far has been successful. The NAACP in South Carolina filed a similar lawsuit. They seek to have some of their members have the ability to help people facing evictions who can't afford lawyers. That litigation is uh, stalled for now, but there's a roadmap there for litigation to make a difference in opening up avenues for people to have help in in civil justice matters. Um, I think that the new generative AI technology we're seeing is likely to be a game changer. I think it's going to be a game changer for the business of law, for the practice of law, and also for the democratization of legal information. So, I I I I do believe that we the, some of the biggest changes are ahead of us, not behind us. But I think I described the system as a bit of a Jenga game, and each one of those uh, changes is pulling a piece out of the tower. And generative AI seems to me to be one that might knock the whole tower over. So, I think change is coming. It'll be interesting to watch it.
0: Is part of the problem with the civil justice system that most government officials—it's uh, really hard to haul those people into that system to to face a challenge.
1: So I think that's actually a, a significant separate issue in the in the civil justice system, and one that there are lawyers, including lawyers at Cato, um, uh, working on, and there is litigation strategy around that, but the. Problem of most people who can't afford lawyers with debt collection problems or eviction problems is in a way a, a related problem. I think they are overlapping in that they both um reduce confidence in, in the justice system. And you know, at the end of the day, the rule of law is not it it's just a set of ideas, and it, it's only as good as the public's confidence in those ideas and in the courts that uphold those ideals and if people lose confidence in the process, I think they lose confidence in the rule of law.
0: I I appreciate that you. a lot of your examples are issues related to debt and issues related to eviction, because almost by definition, those are the people who can least afford counsel in those kinds of cases.
1: Yeah, uh, exactly. And so we see um, extremely high levels of default on those dockets. And You can imagine why if you are somebody who's been served with an eviction notice or a debt collection notice, and you can barely even understand the notice. um, Even the notice is written in a a language that's hard to understand. You're very likely to not even go about trying to figure out how to defend it. You just move out of your apartment or you don't show up uh, on the date the court says you're supposed to because you don't think there's much you can do about it. I mean, imagine if other government services required a translator to be able to use them imagine if to enroll your kids in public school you had to hire a public school specialist you know who is the only one allowed to help you enroll your kid in public school or imagine if you to use the highway had to hire a highway driving specialist who's the only one who could help you on the highway I mean we'd have uh we don't we'd, o- we'd over- we'd overthrow the, the the people in charge, but in the legal system, you have to hire a specialist to be able to help you with basic important civil justice problems, and apparently we're all okay with that.
0: How have lawyers responded uh it seems that you know lawyers they spend a lot of money getting educated so that they can be specialists in courtrooms and advocate for their clients and uh You know, nobody wants to give up their special perch.
1: Yeah, this is actually one of the most disappointing parts of this difficult problem. And I, you know, I get it in one way. Lawyers usually borrow a lot of money to become educated. And in fact, a not insignificant number of lawyers are underemployed as is. We're graduating people from law schools who are um, not uh, able to pay their debts back. So maybe it's not surprising that there, there has been um, significant lawyer resistance to allowing people who are not lawyers to represent uh, people with their civil, civil justice problems. It's obviously silly because the folks with debt collections and eviction problems are not going to close that gap on the, on the lawyer side of the equation. They're not going to make up the difference between the lawyers who are fully employed and those who are not. But we have seen significant lawyer resistance. California, most recently, uh, the lawyers were opposed to um, some of the reforms that might have tracked with Arizonas and and Utahs, and they were successful. Obviously, there have been some lawyers who have done a terrific job pushing some of these reforms, I mean, but not across the board.
0: You mentioned AI, and it's already made an entry into the legal world, even though it's been sort of embarrassing to uh, individual lawyers. We had a case of a lawyer who ended up citing non-existent cases in order to make an argument that he filed with a court. We assume, of course, and you made reference to this in your speech, that it will dramatically improve over time. And as we sort of come to understand where the benefits of AI might lie in terms of uh, helping people navigate the legal system. What do you see as the potential role of AI in the legal profession going forward?
1: Yeah, that one story that you know c- c- stayed in the headlines for weeks of the one lawyer who used, I think, the not even the enterprise version, just the free version of ChatGPT to to write a brief, but it, I feel like it set lawyers back significantly. And that that story was more about the lawyer than the technology. You know, there are um, large language models that are built on legal texts, and lawyers uh, are already using those to bring real efficiency to their practices. But I I I believe that this new technology is really a good fit for the legal profession for lots of reasons. We have a common style of writing. We have legal texts that we can rely on. So this model of AI is, is in my view, about to really change uh, the business and the practice of law and therefore the way individuals can interact with uh, the legal system. It's, it's, it's going to be a potential game changer for this civil justice market failure. I mean, we, I talked a lot about the unlicensed practice of law statutes, which every state has, and some are, you know, more robust than others. But if an individual who, you know, is served with an eviction and figures out how to use uh, one of these large language models effectively to figure out what her rights are and how to respond to an eviction notice and then describes that for others, is that the unlicensed practice of law? It's going to be awfully hard for states to uh, shut down that kind of information sharing among people who might now have the tools to figure out what the law provides for them and expects of them. Information that you kind of think we all should know.
0: If you don't mind, I'd like to change gears just a little bit. Um, State constitutions protect rights over and above what the US Constitution protects and this may sound like a dumb question but do judges at the state level really lean into that
1: no it's actually a great question and I do think the some judges do and and others um, not as much you know I, I'm sure you're familiar with the Chief Judge of the Sixth Circuit, Jeff Sutton's book about state constitutions. I have that book on my bookshelf. I had it on my bookshelf from the time time it was published. And I know a lot of other state Supreme Court justices who are also deeply engaged with their state constitutions. So I think there are many who are and, and, and others less so.
0: You are from an artistic family. You have a sister who's an actress, a brother who's a filmmaker and screenwriter was art anything that you ever considered
1: you know not really i think you know i'm the oldest and i think as the oldest i took the um responsible path went to law school uh we didn't have any lawyers in my family either but i think that that gave my sister and brother a bigger lane actually my sister was just a couple years behind me and she knew she was she was heading in that direction no matter what and then my brother looked at both of us and thought that looks like more fun so he headed in her direction
0: what informed your decision to go into a legal career
1: so it, honestly I I have I have this great godmother my godmother um uh, didn't have kids of her own so she was especially attentive to me as a as a kid my I think my sister had as her godmother one of our aunts and I think she had you know 17 other Godchildren the big Irish Catholic family most of the most everybody has a million Godchildren but my godmother had no other no children of her own no other Godchildren and she Spent a lot of attention with me, and she was a legal aid lawyer in New York City when I was a kid, and I grew up in New Jersey. And so she um, had me come visit her, visit her, and I went to work with her. Um, I, didn't, as I said, I didn't have any lawyers in my family, so she was a real role model for me, and I, I saw the law as a way to help people, and and that's what attracted attracted me to it.
0: You founded the Michigan Innocence Clinic. It was called the first exclusively non DNA innocence clinic in the country. First of all, you explain what that means and what specific need was that created to meet?
1: At, at the time we founded it, it was the only Innocence Project clinic office that was focusing on only cases where there was no DNA evidence to test. There were many, innocent, not many, but there were a number of Innocence Projects around the country that were focused on uh, DNA exoneration. And D- DNA exoneration has been a great boost to what we can learn about the mistakes that get made by humans in the criminal legal system but what it taught us the rate of wrongful conviction which we can we can discuss if you're interested in translates to cases where there is no biological evidence to test so if you know if if we know that the rate of wrongful conviction is somewhere between 3 and 5% and that's what the DNA cases have taught us there's no reason to believe that that rate is uh, lower in cases where there's no blood or other uh, biological evidence that might provide an easy and kind of silver bullet way to exonerate someone. So we thought, let's focus on those cases. Let's focus only on the cases where there is no silver bullet put really smart University of Michigan law students on uh, figuring out how to prove someone's innocence, which is effectively what you really have to do once someone's been convicted. You, it, it's, it's no longer not proof of, beyond, not beyond a reasonable doubt. It's you really have to prove innocence and let's litigate those cases. And the Michigan Innocence Clinic has been stunningly successful. I think they've exonerated, I think they're up to 28 exonerations at this point since it was founded in 2008.
0: And what changes about uh, in a law student when they're exposed to this kind of uh, project or participate in this kind of project?
1: I think it's a profession shaping experience for every law student that gets to participate. I think seeing the ways in which the justice system can go sideways allows uh, a law student to have a perspective, even if she never practices you know criminal law again, but that that perspective, skepticism is important throughout your legal career
0: something that our scholars will say harp on a little bit which is the fact that there are innocent people who plead guilty to crimes for people who are sort of not that familiar with the criminal justice system why do you think that is
1: it's because <laughs> the the penalty for going to trial is so significant. And just because you're innocent doesn't mean you're, you're, you're going to get acquitted. You know, I started my career as a public defender in New York city, and it was in the early nineties. And the, the drug sentencing laws were, you know, the Rockefeller laws were so uh, severe that the, the penalty for possession of a certain you know, amount of drugs was 25 to life for a first time offender. I forget what the amount was, doesn't matter. And I remember having one kid who he had been arrested after taking a bus to New York and he, with another kid had been asked to you know carry a duffel bag and the duffel bag turned out to have drugs in it. And the plea offer was three years to life. And that was the regular plea offer in these first offense I think first degree possession cases. And it's it's impossible for somebody not to take it, even if I I remember in this case, this kid was with the other one and didn't know that the other one had been asked to carry the duffel bag. But was the jury going to believe him, you know, when he said that? So he took this plea to three to life and the and throughout in in the middle of the plea, the judge had to ask him to specify what was in the duffel bag. And he turned to me because he didn't know in the middle of the plea allocution he, he he i had to he said i you know i don't i don't i don't know what to say cuz he he didn't actually know what drugs were in the bag and it like it was a crushing moment i have to say that he was agreeing to go to prison for 3 years uh, because to him it was rational because the chance of doing 25 years was significant The DNA cases have taught us that that a not insignificant number of people who are innocent plead guilty to avoid the trial penalty.
0: This seems like an obvious (laughs) question. How is justice served by a system in which people are strongly encouraged to plead guilty despite being actually innocent? And who argues that it is? It is being served.
1: Yeah. So in my view, it's not served. And I, you know, again, this is one of those things that goes on inside courthouses that a lot of people go through life never understanding. And I, I kind of feel like if, if the world knew, you know, if, we, if, if the world uh, uh, knew what was happening or just Americans knew what was happening regularly, they would not be satisfied with that state of, the, of criminal adjudication. But, I, but, you know, a lot of the regular players in the criminal adjudication system don't think there's any other way to manage it. The only way to manage it is with, you know, 96, 97, 98% of people pleading guilty.
0: And what is the argument? It seems like it has to be an argument of expediency over people getting their day in court.
1: Yeah, I think it's as simple as we simply couldn't give everybody their day in court. So this is the only way the system can operate. It's just, this is what's practical to push all these people through You know, we're not going to hire a bunch of additional judges and find a bunch of lawyers so everybody can actually, you know, have their proof, have their guilt proven beyond a reasonable doubt, That that's not practical.
0: That's a pretty grim assessment. It's grim. You became chief justice of the Michigan Supreme Court in 2019. You were uh, notably not the first woman to hold that position, but it was the first time that the governor, attorney general, secretary of state, and chief justice seats were all held by women. You're notably a supporter and champion of other female justices. Did you have similar champions when you were younger?
1: I had excellent mentors throughout my career. And honestly, most of them were men. And I, I think you know, men are well poised to support women and uh, people of color taking on uh, important positions, leadership positions within the legal profession. That certainly happened for me. And I don't, I think without it, without those mentors, I wouldn't have had the career I've had. I've been very lucky. Um, And I do think it's, you know, it's, it's important to me to, to, to make way for a new generation. I think diversity on the bench, not just in terms of gender and racial diversity, but practice experience diversity, people who have represented individuals ascending to the bench will grow confidence in the justice system. So it's important to me.
0: Bridget Mary McCormack is a former Chief Justice of the Michigan Supreme Court. She currently heads the American Arbitration Association. We spoke earlier this year. Subscribe to and rate the Cadre Daily Podcast anywhere you please. And thank you for listening.